from the Office of Student Research at Roosevelt University. This is The Theory Club. Hello, everybody. Emily, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'd like to let the listeners know this morning I've just completed my rough draft of my um, RL Skills Pedagogy project that we talked about in our first episode. So yeah, exciting. <laughs> Emily is making moves out here, listeners. Welcome to the Theory Club. This very special episode of the Theory Club. I I feel like I say that every time, but they're all special. The listener knows. They are. So, yes. Um, <laughs> So yes, we'll have to have a future episode where, you know, Emily can share her findings with us on her uh, project, very momentous occasion uh, in every young scholar's life. So congratulations to you, Emily. Thank you. Today, we have the privilege and the pleasure of talking to Miss Susan O'Brien. She is an opera director, a performer, a writer. She's a, she does a bunch of different stuff in... Uh, just the world of music performance and of opera specifically. And I had the privilege of working with her at Roosevelt University. Uh, we did um, a project on a Judith Weir piece, an acapella Judith Weir piece that we are gonna talk, or I don't know by the time that this comes out, which order we're gonna be doing these things, but we're gonna talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. Um, we're just really excited to talk to Susan. Susan, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm so I'm so happy to be with you guys, and I'm so happy about this project in general. So, hello. <laughs> yes, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. We're always just so excited to have guests, and it's you know we're having a really fun time with our like women themed, like feminism themed season, and talking to really awesome women about what they're doing, listening to really great music by women talking about feminist music theory, musicology. So it's been just like a deep, a fun deep dive and detour from just like, well, we're going to talk about Beethoven. Beethoven's fine. I'm not coming for Beethoven. All you male listeners. I checked our, our analytics the other day and we're like majority male listeners, which is interesting to me. And like, who are y'all? Send us an email. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. I mean, part of it, hopefully, is that trying to get a female perspective and trying to really understand and integrate what they need to learn as men in the field. We'll see. Who knows why they're tuning in. You should. That's true. I mean, listen, if you're a man listening to the pod, welcome. If you're a woman listening (laughs) to the pod, welcome. We love you. If you're non-binary, we love you. So Susan... Uh, we just want to start with a bit about your background. So like when you started singing and performing and how kind of like your goals in music have changed over time, like just like what led to what and, you know, how you encountered all of the incredible things that you're doing. Yeah. Um, and again, interrupt me if I'm going off into a area or tangent that you're like okay let's think because it's a very winding path so I'll say that as I start that it definitely is going to do this I'm making a sign of winding for the listeners um but I started out at a theater which I think is the most foundational place in terms of the impact of the rest of my life and work was a theater called the Piven Theater Workshop in Evanston and it was two married actors, Joyce and Byrne Piven, and they had done a lot of work in New York and all over the place. And then they ended up in Evanston and raising children and being working actors. And so Joyce um, and Byrne too, but Joyce really was like, found herself in her forties with two small children and feeling like a frustrated artist. And so she founded this with her husband theater school that was really treating children like young professionals in a way and really treating them as artists with their own integral voice. And I think that more than anything as a foundation for me was so impactful because it really was about ensemble and community around art making and deep spiritual practice around art making, like using folk tales and trying to get to the emotional life of children and adult actors that they have an adult um, theater school and do plays and everything. But 
I started working there. Um, I went through that school as a student and really felt like I was in touch with my own authentic um, artistic self because of that process and stuck around there as long as I could because it was so awesome. Ended up teaching there and going to college, having a thousand different majors. <laughs> I went to school to study with a poet named Lucille Clifton. I was writing a lot at that time too and singing and, you know, just kind of a lot of different things, doing a lot of different things. Um, by the time I got out of undergrad, I had landed on a voice major through ethnomusicology, <laughs> which was like my first love, but they didn't have a major yet because it was still very new. It was a small school, so departments didn't have that major. We did have an ethnomusicology professor, which I was so excited about, um, but there was no major yet. So like, you have to have an instrument. I'm like, well, I sing and I love singing. So then I became a vocal major, went to DePaul for grad school. All along, I kept working at Piven just because in the summers when I'd come home from college and then being at DePaul, which is in Chicago, which is near to where the, the theater is, I kept developing like that organic artistic voice part of myself alongside formal classical training to be an opera singer, which was a little harder for me to feel authentic in, but was still like a big love of mine, right? So those two things are kind of going side by side. And um, I guess to make a very long story short, I ended up after graduating, doing competitions, sort of starting to place and do some things with my voice. Um, I had a bigger voice. It was still finding time to settle out after graduation from my master's program. And then I had two kids, which also was like another kind of like life changing event and um, really landed in the work of directing and adapting material, teaching theater at Piven alongside teaching um, classical singers how to integrate their artistic voice through some of the same tools of Piven, also through tools I'd been sort of borrowing along the way from lots of different teachers. Um, you know, being really impacted by the way that Lucille Clifton worked with text and like my own self as a writer and just kind of integrating all those things into being the most interested of anything, how to help artists of all kind, but specifically classical vocalists, how to help them access really authentic artistic practice, which I felt, which I think a lot of people feel is sometimes missing in the study to be a classical musician because there's a lot of needed rigidity. There's a lot of perfectionism, right? That we have to adhere to, but then it's like, how do we still keep that other part of ourself really active and present on stages, in concerts, in vocal literature, you know? So along the way, teaching at Roosevelt, teaching at DePaul University, actually I went back to my alma mater to do some adjunct teaching. Um, I spent two summers at Santa Fe Opera, working with young artists there, staging their scenes. I've done some opera directing in other stages. I've done a lot of devising of shows, like taking a cohort of performers and instrumentalists and working on a folktale or a myth, things like that. Then all of that sort of led to Forte, which is the company that um, we started in Chicago in six years ago, eight years ago. I, my brain is really bad with numbers right today, this morning. Um, but, and that was sort of a culmination of my interest in authentic artistic voice, my interest in women's voices and stories, my dissatisfaction with the way that the operatic landscape allowed for some of those things to be present and integrating that deep sense of play and that training from the pivots from way back into some, so, so that really feels like a, like a, culminative kind of artistic experience for me and part of my development that I, I really feel like was one of the most significant parts. But yeah, all throughout <laughs> the journey, I've done a, a little of a lot of different things to get to, to where I am. And I think definitely feeling very lucky that I had such a rich artistic community from even you know, sixth grade, fifth grade, when I joined Piven and feeling like that kind of those artistic homes, those artistic grounding environments um, are just so unbelievable what they can do for artists and just being inspired to create those kinds of environments wherever I go as a, a teacher or performer or creator. So that's kind of like a big strokes view. <laughs> 
is there any like place you want to ask about or like because I do feel like I sort of left some things out but I just was trying to give you kind of the the nutshell trajectory <laughs> sure I don't know Emily if you have any specific questions um yeah I'm we've talked multiple times on the podcast before so I'm sure the listeners will remember about just the path in music in general and like how you bounce like everywhere and you end up going places you never thought you'd go and I'm sure like with all those like new parts of your life and like different transitions like were there any people that you thought were most like influential to you as you like made new decisions and got to like new places in music yeah I think um in music in music particularly Kit Bridges who's a coach in Chicago um, and I had a number of incredibly gifted vocal teachers as well, not to diminish their presence in my life, but someone who was with my voice over a period of like 10, you know, 15 years. And I think that sense of longevity with a collaborator, um, really a teacher, a coach is something that's so important to find those grounding people who will tell it to you like it is, who really have your back, who, um, you know, there can be a lot of sort of gossip and, um, unsafe environments in classical music just because of the competitive nature of the study and um, and so finding those mentors that feel like really safe and also feel really excellent and are going to support your growth you know and investing in those relationships and finding those people I think that like yeah for for classical music especially and also someone you know Kit and I would have conversations about these transitions I was going through, right? Like, am I still a singer if I'm directing so much? You know, am I, um, if I have two kids versus one kid, is that going to ruin my chances? Or, you know, um, the deep disappointments, I think in classical music, unlike a lot of other pursuits, you know, if you go to law school and you work really hard and you get straight A's and you pass the bar, you're going to, you're going to probably be a lawyer, right? You're going to, but if you work so hard and really achieve a level of perfectionism with your technique, it's really not a guarantee of employment in the traditional one shot kind of way. And I think that's a kind of mindset that I also feel really curious about helping to dispel. Um, I know that the office, um, you know, the professional studies and, and different, different professors and offices at Roosevelt are, are in the, um, in that pursuit too of helping students understand the path, like pathfinding and how broad it can be and how many different components of work can make up that path so that we're not so focused on success as an artist looking one particular way. You know, like I have to have a seat in this orchestra or I will not play my instrument again. And I think especially, excuse me, especially in the climate we're in right now, there's so many different pathways for art making that are so varied and to find mentors that are really open to that, like what, that are open to reflecting back to you what makes you happy as an artist, as opposed to what might make them happy as a professional. Meaning like, you know, some people would say, well, why are you teaching a Piven? It's taking away practice time and your interests are too just diffuse. And other people who said, well, that makes you deeply happy and it might fit in somewhere into your pathway. And then lo and behold, you know, I, I tell this story that as a singer, I was called back for Santa Fe, which was like, oh, I got a call back, you know, for one of the most prestigious summer vocal arts programs um, in the country, didn't get in, right? But then I ended up going there as a director, you know, however many years later, like seven years later, I never would have seen that part coming. I never, and if I had been very singular about my focus, or about what other people wanted for my instrument and my abilities, I would never, I would have held on to the singular thing of I want to be a, a very famous classical singer and I wouldn't have allowed these other parts of me to be active. And I think that's what's important is following what makes you happy, following where you feel like all of your parts of yourself are being used, right? And seeing, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that's a place that's that's really different than, like you said, than what you thought when you first started, right? I mean, I went to college thinking I was going to be a poet, <laughs> right? And then I went, doo, 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 right? And, and now I'm actually writing a lot more and doing more poetry. So who knows? You know what I mean? It's like, it's all <laughs> interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. In fact, that's something so good too, like as an undergraduate, at least to hear, because even just with like one year so far in school, like, and I mean, we have to take account the pandemic. It's been a crazy year, but still like, I feel like my whole life is just a freshman has like changed and like perspective on like the future and like what I want to do. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it's really important to communicate to students like you were saying, Susan, that there's not really one, there doesn't have to be one way to define success. And if you are going to go for that kind of traditional idea of success of I want to be in this orchestra, or I want to sing at this company, you have to be prepared for the reality of who, quote unquote, makes it right, who has that type of career, it's a lot of luck and privilege also involved in that. And, you know, it's a lot of like who we see gets famous. There's not really equity in fame, right? We sell the idea of, well, you could do it too. They did it, right? Like you can point to, uh, you know, a woman or a person of color and say they could, they did it. So you could also do it, right? Um, but I don't know that... Uh, I certainly don't feel like I have the uh, liberty to assume that I will be the exception, right? We can't all be. <laughs> That's why they're called exceptions. And, you know, we have to be honest about the fact that it takes money to pay for all of these auditions. And it takes connections uh, to the right people who will connect you to the next right person who will block, like the way that it happens for some people, or, or, you know, there are even some companies, you know, where you might have to engage in some shady things that you don't want to in order to get to a certain position right there might be a point in your career where you're faced with the choice the the more famous you get and the bigger you get you know the easier it is to benefit from exploiting someone so it's just like I we need to be honest <laughs> with students about the fact that it's not bad to have lofty goals but to understand that really to 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 make sure students are thinking through like why do I have these goals is because I'm kind of trying to embody a preconceived notion of what success is or is that truly my own definition of success and what am I going to do if I don't get that you know idea of success and can I still find other ways to to feel fulfilled so yeah it's really really a an important and powerful idea for students to be invested in music or in art making in more than one way to say oh yeah I, I do love making music but I also love writing music or I also love you know I love collaborative work or I love you know just to find like different ways that you can engage or things completely outside of music that you can be engaged in like something that I regularly think about as I'm like, you know, getting into academia and, you know, wrestling with the reality of academic jobs being pretty scarce already, you know, vocal performance jobs being scarce, just like, you know, feeling the like pressure of like, what's going to happen if it takes, if it doesn't happen for me, or if it takes just like several years to really get off the ground, right? And for me to find a, you know, an academic position or whatever. I love being a barista, right? No cap, 100% into being, I love coffee. I love the process of coffee. I love the production of coffee. I love all the different ways you can prepare coffee. I'm, I like, I'm a people person. I like serving customers. <laughs> like I'm good at customer service. So I like 100%. And it's sad that we don't value uh, food service workers as much, not we, but you know, the general um, <laughs> In, in America, we don't pay uh, customer service workers and food service workers maybe as much as they need to be made in order for it to be a sustainable thing. Because if I could make enough money from being a barista, I, I mean, I would do it. I really like, I really love the process. I love, um, I love talking to customers and, and working with people and talking about coffee and tasting coffee. So like, that's another thing that like I'll always probably really like as far as like whether I need that to be like a career or whatever is a different story. But 
that will always be something outside of music that also brings me a lot of joy. And I think that that's valuable for people to explore like, okay, I have all these things in music that I like doing. And I have these other things, right, that are hobbies that could turn into careers or that are, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. And finding ways to integrate all those things. I think we've become so like in the academy and in conservatory training, we've which is, it's part of the necessity of doing something very well. I understand that, that we've compartmentalized. It's like, this is musical theater and this is operatic, you know, musical theater. And this is, um, you know, jazz and this is classical music. And this is like, and and you enter into this sort of blinder way of looking at your, and, and who knows, it's like, what could being a barista and a performer what integration of a performance piece could be there or something you know what oh, i mean like oh are the listeners kinds. trying to go to a singing cafe is anyone <laughs> trying to drink coffee at a sing? there was like a steakhouse during my undergrad that was like a singing steakhouse and a bunch of my friends worked there and everybody was like Lydia you got to get a job at Bart's and I was like ah that's that like a right. lot of extra singing <laughs> No, but you know, and and just to also, I mean, I think the 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 difference that I've seen between alumni that feel really satisfied to me and happy, and alumni that feel really stuck, or um, you know, or students or even peers of mine through through school, the people who just sort of entered into wherever they were and what they were doing with like a spirit of curiosity and excitement and not a sense of failure, you know, it's like, there's a journey. And those are the people that are really happy and have sort of gathered skills along the way and do amazing things. You know, one of the um, performers in Forte, the company um, that started in Chicago, you know, seven, eight years ago, she's a jam maker, you know, she loves, she works at um, Spoken Cafe in Chicago. Here's a little plug for that. And she makes these amazing, I mean, she's an unbelievable chef. She's an unbelievable um, cook and person and she just her passion for jam you know is also like and she's an opera singer she has like a very full life so I think not thinking not diminishing your experience if you don't that's where I that's where I feel like there's people who really hold on to the tragedy of not singing with a major opera house or something for themselves and that holds them back from enjoying the really full, wonderful life they've created that's right in front of them, you know, and, and, and as someone who's done that at times too, you know, myself, I mean, I think it takes a while to kind of, my friend talks about the grieving process of unhooking from that singular dream when it's something that's really in the culture of classical music study and conservatories and, you know, young honors programs and, master classes and all of that it's geared towards this singular goal and I wish we could sort of open the conversation up a little bit more I mean I know I've heard Joyce Donato talk a little about like your life passions and the whole spectrum of what you're interested in and who you are I know some other singers have started to bring that into their teaching which is really important I think for the health of everyone mm-hmm. absolutely and I mean I commend Emily for already being invested in more than one thing because I certainly was not (laughs) doing that at 18 or involved in research or something like that so even the fact that Emily you know is a double major already in ed and performance um, and doing a five-year degree you know speaks to her understanding of you know even performance not being the whole package and recognizing that you might not be fully satisfied, even if you were to achieve that dream of being a really successful, quote unquote, whatever that means, performer and making a living solo from performance, like you could get there and then still be like, "Ah, but I still have all this curiosity or all this like, you know, pent up momentum that I want to put towards something else. So, you know, the fact that, you know, Emily, as a young person is already like oh let's explore all the different ways that I can be engaged in this rather than like oh I'm just going to be a solo violinist which is you know a a lofty goal not impossible but you know it's good for you because I was (laughs) not there (laughs) yeah no I think it's because um my my path that kind of led me into that because you know most violinists start when they're like five literally and like they're kind of like 
you know, not, I don't want to say forced, but like their parents, like give it to them. You're going to try this thing. And then that becomes their thing. But for me, I started when I was 12. So that's like seven years ago. And it was because I wanted to do it. And then like, when I went to high school, I didn't go to like a performing arts high school. Like I wanted, I kind of like stuck with the high school that like my family graduated from. So it wasn't really like immersed in music. Like I wanted it to be. So once I got to Roosevelt, technically I stayed in my room, but once I like got to Roosevelt this year, I was like, okay, I'm doing like what my heart wants me to do. Like, I'm, and I just like, I kind of wanted to go to everything. So I think really thinking about that, it's just, it's mainly because of how my path initially started. And I wasn't put on that path where it's like, okay, you are five, you're starting the violin now. And then you have that fixed mindset as from a kid, like, okay, and now I get to be the performer. And I think that's hard for people like that to break, at least like people I know. Welcome ladies and gentlemen to my cooking show called Jesus Take the Frying Pan. <laughs> now, today I'm gonna talk to y'all about something that is very near and dear to my heart, something that is important to each and every one of you and that thing is sausage. Sausage is so very important to all of us. You see, every culture all across God's creation has some form of sausage. Every single one. You see, it's what brings us together. It's what unites us as a human race. It's glorious, isn't it? Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Now. Okay, so let's get into i'm really really fascinated by just like everything that i saw on your website with forte i'll put it in the description for the listener um so if you get a chance to to check it out and watch some of the videos how did this come to be i'm so fascinated even by just like the background process of like planning these shows and arranging the music there was so much music i was astounded so like how how did this happen <laughs> yeah i mean it it was sort of a happy accident so i um my friend sarah bendix who's a really long time collaborator on many different kind of devised theater shows i call her my art wife because we have been collaborating so much and so long we're like art married um and uh <laughs> I said, I really want to experiment with the Piven games, which I had been doing in the classrooms at Roosevelt. I had been bringing improvisatory singing into the, um, the theater practice classrooms for the classical singer at both DePaul and Roosevelt, but I wanted to do something more formal with it or just showcase it. Or So there was an improv festival at Piven and they were looking for teams. And so I, I sent out this big email blast to former students of mine and and said um I'd love for you to come play and do this thing like we're going to just be a team on this improv night if you're interested doing classical singing I think we had a violinist um who was helping us a little bit with violin at that point we didn't have a pianist for that first gig I don't think now I'm still trying to remember um and we just played around and so only I did actually put the email blast out to men and women but only women responded, which is kind of a happy accident because it ended up being one of the most amazing parts of Forte. And so then, oh, like that for, we, we met six or seven times and rehearsed some games and sort of created this idea of like, okay, we're all diva personas and we do these improv games together. We do improvisational singing. We involve the audience um, much like, you know, I'm sure you've seen like whose line is it anyway, or different improv TV shows where they like, riff on games and do some music I think Jimmy Fallon does a lot of stuff like that right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um and it just like I said that we all felt wow this room of women this feels really different this feels really empowered um a lot of people were very hungry for a sense of freedom inside classical singing and a sense of just being an entertainer in a really uncomplicated way without so much pressure to be perfect. And I was amazed working with these singers, how much more of their personality and their abilities and even their vocal freedom was present in the rehearsal room than I had seen in the classroom. 
right? Or even maybe on stage. Not, I mean, it wasn't like a completely dramatic transformation, but it was definitely something where there was consistently more joy, more freedom, you know, just more sort of entertainment happening, maybe less technical beauty, I mean, or technical perfection or musical complexity, but um, more show business, you know, <laughs> more excitement. And we went through so many different iterations. I mean, all of the women of Forte in that foundational group were so crucial to getting structure and like, it was like all hands on deck. Um, Carrie Kosas and Kristen Bingham, two of the founding members were really instrumental in helping get like the, um, I don't want to say the architecture, the structural stuff underneath of us, like all the stuff no one wants to do. They were slugging away and doing all that hard work to get us more organized and, you know, to try and start raising money, things like that. And, you know, we've gone through a lot of iterations now, actually I'm, you know, in Seattle. So Forte is going to be chugging along without me, <laughs> which is so sad. I mean, I'll be touching base with them, but they're really a functioning company on their own feet. And some of the women who are in the company have been there from the very, very beginning and are so instrumental in sort of like, once you build an ensemble and you start to have a common language of how to create work, it starts to take on a life of its own. Um, Heidi Jutsen, who is a former CCPA composition uh, master student, came into the group maybe two years in or a year and a half in. She came to see our ridiculous Christmas show, <laughs> which had a lot of sacrilegious and crazy and like feminist things. She loved it. And she's an unbelievable improvisational pianist. So like we kind of just started bringing like pieces in and building shows really in a very haphazard ground up kind of way, you know, <laughs> like, okay, let's make this sketch. Let's make this sketch, you know, but basically a lot of the sketch making and a lot of the humor, which I think a lot of humor comes out of a painful experience. You know I mean? I think, or a disenfranchised experience, right? So in some ways, not like, I love Hannah Gadsby, you know, and that, I don't know if you've seen that special where she talks about how humor can come out of self-deprecation or it can come out of pain. Um, and I think that a lot of the humor of Forte was built around toxic parts of the culture of the classical vocalist and the student-teacher relationship, how that can also be really, you know, as someone who's a teacher who's never, who has also made mistakes and not been perfect at that relationship, you know, there's all this weird hierarchical stuff that comes into the, the maestro student relationship, the diva, what, what the psychological wounds of the diva are, and then also how the repertoire that we're performing all the time wounds us in certain ways as women, because it's so, uh, <laughs> I say, uh you know, there's so much disempowered stuff everyone's killing themselves because if they're a powerful woman, there's no other option, you know, and there's mm -hmm. like ways, there are ways, there are directors who are really contextualizing that in sensitive and beautiful ways, a lot of the women, but we got to go in and use humor, just basically say, this is ridiculous and we don't feel comfortable and like, here's what we're going to do. And I think part of it too was like being overtly kooky and sexual. Like we had this show called The Sausage Show, <laughs> which was basically like, you know, it had lots of different bits to it, but the main bit of it was this folktale sort of urban legend about Chicago sausage stands having a contest, like who had the cheapest and best sausage. And of course it was just like a way to blow off steam and be like, we're using our apparatic voices, these gorgeous instruments, but we're literally making sausage jokes for like 30 minutes and being like empowered, sexually free females inside this antiquated form you know it was just so like lots of that I think was about being empowered you know and being in your body with an operatic sound coming out of you you know there's so much like corseted mannered strange things that women are expected to do in opera and so this was like put, slap on a mustache and let your body be completely free you know and see what that does to your art, artistic progression and how you feel. So things like that. And I think that 
you know, women and definitely in the group have talked about this, that being able to take some of these, like these feminist ideas or these ideas, like these places that were really uncomfortable and actually not just talk about them or bitch about them, which is what we, we would do that a lot in rehearsal too. A lot of rehearsals would be like, oh my gosh, I was in this rehearsal and this is the way someone talked to me or, oh my gosh, this totally racist thing happened to me in rehearsal. And then we'd like get up and maybe enact it or like make a joke or like take on the persona of that person doing harm and, and allowing us to sort of flip the narrative mm-hmm. and exercise the demon in a way, you know? And, and it was hysterical and really fun to just kind of um, bring ourselves as comedians, as women, as singers into conversation with these things. So that's kind of like really what I think is at the core of Forte. I mean, it, it really, I would say most of our shows have been pretty political, not intentionally like we didn't set out to make a political show, but when you look back and you look at it, it's like, wow, this is really just about the female experience and our complicated feelings about it. And we have a lot to say, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, when when Donald Trump was president or had just won, um, I'm trying to think it was like a year after maybe even, or right in the middle of that, we did this whole thing with the Mozart forgiveness chorus from... Marriage of Figaro. And instead of like using the Italian, it was basically about like the countess getting a perfect um, bikini wax and then having like this big reveal of this like bejeweled bikini area, like just like, like completely like underwear, you know, completely, she wasn't nude, you know, but like this sparkling, beautiful vagina (laughs) underwear. And then all of us singing, like, my pussy is free. You can't grab my pussy. And so it's hysterical, but also, I mean, I would tear up when we were singing that because here we are a group of women, you know, at this time when we're feeling so much despair about the female experience because of Trump's presidency and we're singing an operatic chorus that's been around for hundreds of years about how our pussies are free, you know, and like worshiping (laughs) her bejeweled underpants. I mean, so like... (laughs) I, yeah, like kind of my favorite art of all time in a way, you know? So, so yeah, so I think that, that the magic of Forte is a lesson that, you know, any group of people grappling with any kind of feelings of being disempowered as artists should get together and explore it and make art, you know, about it or making sure to find communities, like we were talking about with mentors, I was mentioning this mentor kit bridges, making sure you can find people and collaborators where you feel safe to make the art that you really want to make. You know, whether that's just like, wow, this quartet, we feel really in tune with each other. And we all sort of share the same art, artistic goals and the mantra of why we create art is very similar let's get together and do something. And I think, again, that goes all the way back to Piven as my foundational artistic community, because, you know, of course, no place is perfect, right? Like some people probably had a, not the same kind of experience I had there. And I, you know, I've definitely learned that no artistic home is, is without its own family stuff. Right. But for me, Piven was um, a place where you felt in community and that art making wasn't just about your own self. It was about some kind of conversation and being together and making changes in the world or the way people saw the world or the way you see the world or healing parts of yourself through art. And I think that's what I really want more of with the operatic voice. I want to see the operatic voice in places where that's sort of the end goal or that's what's happening in the rehearsal room. And I think that can happen in traditional big opera houses you know, um, I think with the right kinds of directors or pieces or singers that, that the rehearsal room can be driven in, in that way. Um, but if you're finding yourself in a lot of places where it doesn't feel like that, then make something, you know? <laughs> I have so much admiration and respect for funny women who dare to do it in public 
because <laughs> there are a lot of barriers to that, right? And a lot of men telling you that you can't. And right. um, we were talking to a different guest about this, Malia Jade Roberson, um, about she has this really cool like music theory Instagram um, that she does and she's invested in in public music theory and public pedagogy and I think projects like this are so cool because you know I have a lot of people in my life that don't know anything about opera and don't understand anything about what I do and would be intimidated to go and see an opera with me but they would love something like this something that really breaks down the barriers and the elitism of the field to be able to say yeah we participate in this art form that you know has a lot of beauty but also has a lot of issues and a lot of harm and a lot of um you know restrictions and and oppression that is just as prevalent as the beauty right and so ways of just like poking fun and being serious but being not and and making it um a public space spectacle that feels more accessible like I really I remember the first time that I went to the IO theater here in Chicago and I saw improvised Shakespeare obsessed right obsessed again I'm uh, I'm I'm fascinated by the process of comedy of sketch comedy of improv I think it's so difficult and such a a a, a honed skill like I'm fascinated by the expertise of comedy and what they do at IO theater um you know, they improvise these Shakespeare shows, right? And so they're just these incredible people that speak in like iambic pentameter and like the prose of Shakespeare, but right. make up a different show every night. <laughs> like the, you know, they ask the audience, what should the show be called? One time I went with my sister and she yelled really loud, Santa stole my girlfriend. We went at Christmas time. She said, Santa stole my girlfriend. And they said, okay, that's it. Santa stole my girlfriend. <laughs> and, you know, pay attention because this is the opening and closing night of Santa Stole My Girlfriend. And then they just put on this whole show, make it up as they go, right? And in Shakespeare fashion, it always ends in, you know, love and a big wedding or in like tragedy and everyone dying. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you get to watch them kind of like, you know, make faces at each other and give each other the eyes. Like, where are we going with this? And it's, it's so much fun. And I, as someone who's not really familiar with Shakespeare or with plays or something like that, what a cool like introductory way to just the language and the text and the way of speaking. But in this way that's like so fun, you can't help but enjoy it and admire it. It's incredible. So things like that, projects like that, that really um, break down these classical art forms in a way that is so enjoyable. I just, I love it so much. George Washington, light bulb, peanut butter, trains, six flags, Alexander Hamilton. anything you uh, any observations from any of the videos you watched did you have a favorite video um well actually what I was thinking um I wanted to ask I'm sure I know the answer to this unfortunately <laughs> but with like such amazing ideas like that and kind of transform not really transforming but like kind of like what Lydia said making music a bit more accessible and calling out you know those um negative parts of the field I'm sure you got negative reactions from people or have they mostly been positive? I think, yeah, for the most part, they've been positive, but we did encounter, um, you know, someone who writes up events for like classical music events or different things like that, where they would feel like we don't understand what you are or you're not classical music, you know, which 
Mm. Which I under, <laughs> I mean, I understand. And I also think like calling, I mean, I think that's sort of part of the problem of the vitality of what we call classical music is that there is a, there is a definitive line somewhere. And is it because we're using certain kinds of language? Is it because we don't have um, a conductor? Is it because we're not, you know, scoring things in a certain way? Is it because there's improvisational elements that it's not classical music? Do you know I mean, so it's not like we got into a big fight about it, but it was just something we noticed that it was like, oh, that's funny. And that's, that's great, but that's not legitimized in terms of the scene of Chicago and classical music or even opera, you know? So, and I think there's, I think that's sort of part of the problem too, <laughs> when we look at like the growth of the field. And then that was sort of, you know, that was many years ago. And I think now, especially since COVID and people are doing all kinds of weird and cool and interesting projects online and digitally, I really hope that that kind of spirit of innovation and what we consider a piece of opera that we can keep the we can keep expanding the view of what that could be that what that could look like both in terms of like technical facility which even what is that do you know what I mean I feel like there's so much meaning making and hierarchical thinking that is I mean Lydia and I have talked about that is also about race and is also about cultural elitism and is about like what is considered high art versus low art and what's in the mm. academy and what's not and we could keep unpacking that, right? Like, is a room full of women considered as legit legitimate as a room full of women with three men, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I think these are all just the questions that we're all asking about how the canon of classical music came to be, what that word means, how we can start to kind of open that up so that we can be more inclusive. And like to Lydia's point about the elitism of the financial component of studying to be a classical vocalist. You know, we could get together in, as Forte in a room and mess around and we didn't have to pay for a coach. We didn't have to pay for, an, you know, the rights of a piece, right? We didn't have to, because we were creating our own material. So there were like lots of barriers to entry of making a piece of classical music that we just didn't have to concern ourselves with because we were sort of on the fringe. But I think it's so true that artists can shrivel up and die if they don't have the money for audition for programs, for having regular coachings, for, you know, creating their own company and hiring an orchestra to put on a traditional piece of music. Like it, it is a very, like someone was talking about um, the performance of wealth inside classical voice, and I'm sure it's in, in, in instrumentalism as well, that, that because the culture of the ticket price, the venues that we perform this music in, the culture around attending those, those performances is really a barrier to entry, right? Um, and so like we were doing things in a black box, BYOB for five bucks or 10 bucks. And suddenly, yeah, someone's hearing an operatic sound and they've never heard an operatic sound before. And they're like, wow, I really like that sound. But how would that person have ever gotten into an audience otherwise? You know what I mean? It's, there are so many things about the elitism that's broadcast in and around the form of opera that really is problematic. I know a lot of people are trying to address from so many different angles and people are in the fight, but it is, and Lydia, again, we've talked about this a lot too. At a certain point, it's so ingrained in the culture of the thing itself how do we actually accomplish that? It's a big, mm -hmm. question, a big mm -hmm. question. Yeah. And I mean, to bring it to kind of music theory and music academia, in all of academia, I'm, it's, there's such a, a narrow frame around what scholarship is, right? As defined by the peer review process, right? Which is historically really problematic and can very easily turn into censorship as defined by even the fact that so much of higher education there's such a huge focus especially in America on reading and writing a huge disadvantage to foreign students right to to right. students that are coming from different countries or to students where English isn't their first language right like huge disadvantage I personally right I like writing I like 
reading and articles and things like that. So I don't have a problem with papers and stuff like that. I mean, we've talked a bit about how I have some paper anxiety, but you know, we're working through it. But you know, so I I don't have a huge problem uh, with reading and writing because I like those activities. But I think by far, I'm the best at speaking, right? But does something like this, like I love doing this podcast, is something like this in 10 years going to be considered scholarship, right? Like, how do we expand the ways, just like you were saying with with opera and with classical music, like, where are the lines and, you know, are those margins at all, is it helpful to begin to poke fun at those and say okay yeah isn't this ridiculous that what we're doing like takes a lot of work and expertise and time and commitment um but we still don't get to you know reap the same benefits as a larger opera house we don't get to be considered the same so that's that's kind of how you know it's similar to how I feel about the way that we talk about scholarship through this narrow scope of like well how many articles have you published how many books have you written and that's all there is to it rather than like you know making sure that we're valuing really important thinkers and whatever medium that they want to express their scholarship and their worldview and their lines of thinking and their research and their analysis like what are the what are the ways that make sense for each individual scholar to express the ideas and the music that they're working through do we yeah. allow them to like <laughs> have other ways in which they're engaged in it so yeah yeah and like in- invention and creativity sometimes happen in spite of structures as opposed to like being supported by the structures you know so it's like how do we yeah i love that idea like podcast is scholarship or you know like in the poetry community which I'm just like doing more in right now you know there's a whole discussion between slam poets versus poets of the academy you know it's like the validity of both right like someone bringing their full self to a performance and using like unbelievable expression and rhythm and like a performative um, and sound-based as opposed to just an intellectual and image-based piece of work, right? But both are unbelievably inventive and beautiful in their own ways, right? Like, and why one gets not as much respect as another and why those things happen and when that started and what that's about. And those are the questions that like, we really have to examine so we don't disenfranchise people. Yeah, 100%. These ladies think they can sing, but can they sing? with food in their mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Bethany, distribute the bananas. (laughs) Now ladies, without sacrificing your diction, your beauty of tone, your emotional intent, I want you to consume the banana while we, the audience, consume your song. Peel your bananas. Remember, this is for the non do you want the lyric on your resume? Yes. <laughs> Prepare your bananas. <laughs> it's not ready. Take a bite. Oh, well, actually, hmm. I'm to be careful <laughs> getting into this. I don't want to make a fool out of myself like I did before. Okay, so <laughs> I did watch, you'll see what I mean in a second. I did watch one of the um, videos. Um, this one was the um, one with baby, it's cold outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it had uh, Lydia pronounce it for me. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> um, Der Elkernich by uh, Schubert. Yeah, Schubert. Yes. Yes. I am in love with that. I loved kind of just like 
the overall, I mean, like I, I, that was one I just watched like before we um, came on here, but I kind of loved like the mix of that and how like you put all that together. And especially because I love that piece so much. I've listened to a bunch of arrangements, never actually played it because it's very technically demanding on violin, but yeah, I just want to say I really enjoyed that one. I think that one was my favorite. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And it's, um, Will Huff was the composer of that too. I mean, he, um, is the partner of one of the singers, Carrie Kosas in that piece. And he composed that mashup, which was just unbelievably brilliant. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was like, we had, this, we had this loose idea, baby, it's cold outside mashed up. And then he put that all together and it was like, and especially for the, actually, I think, I think Dean Burnett was in the audience for that one. And, you know, so the joke hit on many levels and like, it was still funny to people who just knew baby it's cold outside, you know, and also just the performance was, I mean, it was funny and also disturbing. Right. Um, and, but the people who knew the piece and the context of that musical gesture being referenced were like dying because they like, they knew like, oh yes, this is like a super scary, rapey classical piece, right. That we all like has this intrinsic theatricality and so it was interesting to hear like who were the music nerds in the audience who like who got the joke on many levels <laughs> who were understanding that like oh that's like an actual elf like preying on this like child so yeah I mean my favorite was probably so you think you can sing I thought that was so funny purposely encompasses the plight of the soprano right as far as you show up and you're one of 60 sopranos singing oh mio babino right and right. you know all the all the rigmarole of getting a tiny little chorus part where you're not even going to sing you just get to be on stage for a second or whatever um so just being able to poke fun at like you know we go through all this for what for like scraps <laughs> yeah no and it's funny because alex salas who's one of the performers in that video um she loves that piece so much and at a certain point I just got so nervous about choking, <laughs> like as the, as the artistic director. And it's funny because now I'm sort of like artistic director emeritus, you know, like they'll be doing some of their own decision-making now that I'm on the West coast. And, um, and, and Alex and I, for a while, we're like sending each other banana pictures because she's like, you took away my favorite piece. And I'm like, I'm just trying to save your life. I don't want you choking on stage with like banana, but I, I, I think it may come back now that I'm no longer, <laughs> in charge of the, like I'm the scared mom of the group like I just I'm worried someone's gonna choke it looks like too real so but yeah and just like the humiliation right of being a classical singer and all the rejection and like the lengths you're willing to go and then also this idea that opera is this sacred thing that has to be performed in this one way and like even though they're singing with bananas in their mouths it's still sounding really they beautiful. sound beautiful <laughs> right and so like you know, just this idea of like the sacred and the profane. It's like, you know, nothing is sacred. And if we look at our art that way, then we're going to open it up so much more to so many more people and, and so much more possibility, you know? Right, so that is going to do it for this episode of The Theory Club. We want to say a big thank you for Susan to being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was so great. <laughs> um, it was so great to have you. And we're so thankful that we have access to just amazing women that are doing amazing things and are um, so prolific and inspiring in their endeavors. So thank you for just being a great person and being on the pod. If you're listening right now and you're like, wow, I really want to be on the podcast too. I'm so jealous of Susan. <laughs> and I wanna, I wanna, I wanna talk about my favorite piece or the research that I'm interested in or the work that I'm doing. You can send us an email at the Theory Club Podcast at gmail.com. Send us what, you know, songs that you're listening to, you know any any requests for what we should talk about or things we should read we want to know if you're like wow there just aren't enough podcasts analyzing you know all-star by 
Smash Mouth, you can let us know. We might say no, but like you can let us know. <laughs> Send us the email. Um, and yeah, follow us on the Theory Instagram. And other than that, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a great Friday, a great weekend, a great summer, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. And uh, I had the privilege of working with her at, oh. <laughs> oh no, I'm so sorry. It's okay, okay. <laughs> Lydia can be it's our okay. first blooper. Our first theory, like, theory called blooper, I always, perfect. Listen, I always put bloopers at the end. This will just go at the end. I'm going to cut it out. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know how to, it's so funny because I, yeah, I'm just going to have to turn my phone completely off because it rings on my computer. I don't know how to stop it. <laughs>